Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and open up to the book of Philippians, and I want to welcome those of you joining us online as well. Thanks for taking the time to join us this morning. Um, We want to make sure you have your Bibles too, so grab those. Philippians chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians all the way through uh, to the end of the year, and um, I was thrilled by the amount of people this week that I talked to who have taken on the Philippians reading challenge for the next two months. And uh, if you don't know what that is, it's okay. You can jump in this week. And all that is, is I'm challenging you all, while we are going through this book of the Bible, um, to read this all the way through at least once a week. Okay, four chapters. And uh, I'm, I'm really impressed. There's been a number of people I've talked to who are seeking to do this every single day, which is amazing. And I want to talk to you who are doing it every day at the end of these two months and see what has shifted in your perspective and see where you're at in your understanding of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, um, Paul and Timothy's letter to the church at Philippi. And uh, I, I encourage you, jump in and do this, all right? I believe wholeheartedly that when we faithfully read Scripture, even if it's the same thing, God will use it to transform us uh, and make us more like Jesus. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at the second half of Philippians chapter 1, and uh, this is the main idea. If you get nothing else out of today, and you're going to hear this repeated a couple of times this morning, if you get nothing else out of today, this is what I want you to grab hold of. It is joy in the midst of suffering is dependent on the object of my joy. Joy in the midst of suffering is dependent on the object of my joy. And we're going to unpack why this comes to light today as we study through this text. Uh, But I'm interested just for you to stop and think a minute. If I were to ask you to define suffering, I want you to just pause and think what comes to mind, okay? In in our minds, what is it that we label as suffering? We go, I'm suffering in this state of being. Now, if if you were to go to Scripture, or, or to, if you were just to define this, look for a definition of this, you get on your phone or on your computer and you Google this. This is what you would find. It would say, suffering is the state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. Now, when you hear that definition, is there anyone in the room that has not suffered at some point in their life? Okay? The reality is no, there's, there's not. Because at some point in our lives, every one of us has experienced a measure of pain, distress, or hardship. 
And in fact, I would venture to say every one of you in here today, at some level, in some area of your life, is experiencing a measure of pain, distress, or hardship. Whether that is in your marriage, in your parenting, in relational areas, in your job, in your lack of a job, you fill in the blank. When we recognize that, all of a sudden we understand to a deeper level that this is not uncommon. Now a more challenging question, and let's see if I'm the only one up here. How many of you, when you face suffering, the first choice for you to respond is enjoy? And we kind of chuckle because naturally we go, no, it's not. And I'm right there with you. Instead, when we face hardship, when we face trial, when we face pain, distress, or hardship, we, our natural tendency is to ask, why? Why, Lord? Why? Or we're constantly looking at the hard or the, the suffering aspect, and we focus in on that, and we go, why me? Why is this happening to me? And what I want to unpack this morning is what Paul reveals, his responses in the midst of imprisonment, as he's writing this letter to the church, to encourage the church. And we ultimately know, this is kind of the main idea from last week, and it's really a good series idea. Uh, when we're asking the question, how do I pursue a life where I'm full of joy? Now, don't misunderstand me. I didn't say full of happiness. Full of joy or joyful. Literally full of it, joy. And the, the simple, not so simple answer to that is fullness of joy is found when I'm choosing to glorify God in all things. But let's go to the text and we're going to unpack this a little more. I'm going to start in verse 12, and we're going to walk through this bit by bit and um, gather some application along the way. But I primarily want to focus in on Paul's words this morning and uh, uh, see exactly what he has called us to as the church. It starts in verse 12 of chapter 1 in Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, what's really interesting about this, Paul begins this section by saying, I want you to know that what's happened to me and what's happening to Paul is that he's in prison. He's in prison for the sake of the gospel. And he's going, what's happened to me is serving to move the message and the hope of the gospel forward. It's literally advancing the gospel. And then he goes on in the next verses to explain how it's advancing the gospel. Well, how is this happening, Paul? What is taking place that would cause you to say such a thing? Well, first off, Paul has been vocal enough. Or other people surrounding Paul had been vocal enough about his imprisonment to recognize that this imprisonment is for 
Jesus. This is all for Christ. So much so, it's been communicated so much so that the Imperial Guard and all the rest, whoever all the rest is, I don't know. It could be other prisoners. It could be other people that work alongside the guards. All we know is there is a decent group of people that in the midst of this trial have become aware that Paul is in this trial, in this circumstance, for the sake of Jesus. And the second one is that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by the trial he's experiencing, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. How cool is that? That not only are those who are kind of around Paul at this time, recognizing the reason for his imprisonment, but the other brothers and sisters in Christ, seeing what's happened to Paul, are even further emboldened to proclaim the good news about Jesus right where they're at. This next section, he says, yes, well, I don't want to, hold on, I don't want to lose sight of, there's a couple of verses in between here. Let's look in, your, look in your Bibles, verse 15, 15 through 18. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So if we were to go back to that main idea, the key to joy in the midst of suffering is dependent upon the object of my joy. And here, Paul goes as far to say, it doesn't matter to me what your motivation is for preaching the gospel. Whether it's right or not is not my concern. What my concern is, is the gospel is being preached. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And in fact, what's interesting, at times I think we convince ourselves that the conflict we experience amongst people is, is isolated to our generation and current society. It's not. Here Paul is in prison and there's literally people who are preaching the gospel in a way to try to discourage Paul while he's in prison. I don't know what that would have looked like, but it was apparently evident to other people enough that they told Paul that there's these people that are preaching the gospel just to try to get under your skin. And Paul goes, I don't care what their motive is. If the true gospel is being proclaimed, I'm going to rejoice. Why? Because the object of his joy was rooted in the gospel of Jesus. Paul had experienced radical transformation in the name of Christ, and there was literally nothing that could squelch that from him. No matter how hard everyone else tried, they could not. Imagine being of such a state of mind that you can rejoice in the Lord even when people are coming at you, and you go, if the gospel's being proclaimed, I'm going to rejoice. That's hard. And he repeats this, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. There's a confidence here that through the prayers of the people, get this, and the work of the Spirit, that he will be delivered from this trial. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ's and to die is gain. How many of us honestly could repeat those words? It's nice to hear, and it's nice to aspire to, but honestly, by the trajectory of our life and what becomes our priority, how many of us could honestly say and echo the words of Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, when I was, I, I, I think I sat here more this week than I did any of the rest of our text because I was so challenged by this church. And one, I was using one of Warren Wiersbe's commentaries later in the week, and um, he had this really great self-test that we can use with these verses. How would we fill in these blanks? For me to live is what? And to die is what? Now, he gave several examples, and so I want to share those with you. He said, for, for to me to live is money, and to die is to leave it all behind. For to me to live is fame, and to die is to be forgotten. For to me to live is power, and to die is to lose it all. How would you fill these in? What is it that your life reveals you live for? This is life. And what does that mean in death? For me to live is what? And to die is what? You see, if we were to go back to this, literally Paul is saying, the most important thing to me in life is Jesus. For me to live is Christ. For me to stay alive in my body is Christ. That is, all of life is Jesus. That is what is most important. Why is it that Paul could continue to rejoice in the state of being he was in? Because for him to live was Jesus. All of it, the focal point was Christ. See, oftentimes we can fill in this blank with a lot of other things. For me, to live is parenting. And to die is to let my kids down. For me, to live is relationships. And to die is to lose them all. For me, to live is my job. And to die is to lose my identity. May the church, corporately, us, be able to say... For us to live life here is to live it for the name of Jesus. So that whatever happens and whatever comes and whatever takes place and whatever transpires and whatever I lose in this life, I know that what is most important is secure and I can have joy. Now, to die is gain. What does he mean by that? He goes on to explain this. If I am to live in the flesh, this is verse 22. That means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. One of the things I love about this is it reveals Paul's heart for his people that he's ministering to. Where he's in prison and he's wrestling. He's honestly wrestling. You know what? I feel like it may be, not, not I feel like, I desire, I know it's going to be far better if I'm with Jesus. Way better. And yet he goes, you know what though? I see what God is doing in your midst. And so I'm conflicted because I don't want to leave you. I, I, I want to see you poured into and equipped. And so it's, there's this conflict in me because if I'm the flesh, I can continue to work for the sake of Jesus. Fruitful labor for me. And yet, to depart and be with Jesus is far better. Church, one of the things I want to emphasize here is this reality that to be with Christ is far better. And here's the reality. There's many of you in this room who've experienced significant loss in your life. Loved ones who have gone on, who've passed away. And I want you to find a lot of solace in this. To be with Jesus is far better. And in fact, the more I understand this, the more envious I become of brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed on. I'm like, man, they're with Jesus. And I'm still here. And yet I echo the framework of Paul going, man, there's fruitful labor happening here. I, I, I have to rejoice in this. But to find comfort in the fact and be able to rejoice even in the midst of grief to know that to be with Jesus, even Paul acknowledges before he's with him, to be with Jesus is far better. And goodness, family, we can celebrate with our loved ones who've gone before us in Christ because it is far better. Verse 27 he says, Only let your Manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is a challenge to the church. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Have you ever stopped to consider in your own family unit what unifies you and what divides you? What is it that you would fill in the gap with if I said this is what unites our family together. And maybe it's something from the past. Maybe there's disunity in your family today. And you look back and you go, I see what united us previously, and now there's disunity. 
Paul's prayer and his desire and his challenge to the church is you need to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for what? The faith of the gospel. Not frightened by, in anything by your opponents. And in fact, he goes on from there. He says that when you're not frightened by your opponents, because you're arm in arm for the sake of the gospel, the good news that there is salvation in Christ and in Christ alone, when you are unified in that purpose and those who are opposed to you see that you are unified in that way, it is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that salvation being from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not get this, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What is that conflict? Well, the reality is the conflict, the number one conflict that we face, church, is a conflict of an opposing worldview to that of the Bible. Really humbling statistic I'm going to share with you that I heard recently. Statistics said, in our country, 20%, only 20% have a biblical worldview. Even though 70% would call themselves Christians. Even more staggering statistic. That same report said 30% of churchgoers have a biblical worldview, even though 80% think they do. Now, some of you may ask, well, what's the difference between a biblical worldview and an other worldview? A biblical worldview says, my eyes are fixated on Jesus, and I desire and seek to live according to what God has called me to. And that means it influences how I treat other people. It influences the decisions I make. It influences every facet of who I am and who I lead my family to be. To have an other worldview is to allow other things to be the driving force behind who you are and what you do. Paul's desire here is that the church would unite around the gospel, the good news. And that as they unify, that they would be increased in boldness, lacking any fear. And that then is what becomes evidence of their salvation as they unify together. You know the church has the potential to be one of the most transformational earthly organizations in the world because we hold the most precious gift known to mankind. Joy in the midst of suffering is dependent on the object of my joy. If I choose to find my joy in anything of this world, I will be disappointed. If you choose to find your joy in your children, 
you're going to be disappointed. Because your kids aren't going to meet your expectations. They're going to fail because they're sinners in need of a Savior just like you. If you find your joy in your job, you're going to be disappointed. Because situations are going to come along and people are going to come along that you really don't get along with. You may lose your job. You may get to a point of retiring and if your joy has been found in your job, you may have an identity crisis. If you find your joy in your spouse, you're going to be disappointed. Not only because they let you down at times, but also because there's a chance that they're not going to be here as long as you. Some of you have experienced this directly. If you find your joy in relationships, you're going to be disappointed. Because people are going to hurt you. People are going to move. Relationships shift and change. So if all of these earthly things will lead to disappointment and a lack of joy at some point, where do I find my joy? My prayer is that you would find your joy in the one who has saved you. Because Romans 8 says, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I want to leave you with a practical step-by-step. How do I suffer with joy? And you can take a picture of this. You can share it with people. I don't care. But as we think through Paul's writing here and his encouragement to the church, how do we suffer with joy? Because here's the deal. You will continue to face suffering. And if you believe it's going to get better and hope that it's going to get better, you are deceived. The Bible says until Jesus comes back, it's not going to get better. And when you see culture falling apart, you should go, Jesus is coming sooner. Amen. And instead, so often, church, because we found our joy in this earth or this country or this place, We start mourning and going, oh, I'm so agonized over everything falling apart. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be frustrated. It is good to fight for your freedoms. It is good and important to stand up for that which is right and true. But do not be surprised when the rest of the world doesn't. Because the Bible says that's going to happen. And every time things get a little bit worse, I get a little more excited. Just to be honest with you, because I go, he's coming soon. And as Paul would say, to be with Christ is far better. And I long for that day. But until then, I want to encourage you with this. When you face a season of pain, distress, or hardship, number one, acknowledge the season of hardship. I can't tell you the number of people I sit with that feel guilty for going through a hard time. Hardship and suffering will come. Acknowledge it. Be willing to acknowledge it. Because as soon as you acknowledge it, now we can do something about it. 
But don't just acknowledge a season of hardship. There's some people who do that and that's where they stop. And those are woe is me people. Okay? I'm in a constant state of hardship. Nothing is ever good. Nothing is ever better. It's always hard. That's where step two comes in. Don't just acknowledge your hardship. Acknowledge your primary mission. Church, your primary mission is not to show up here on Sunday. Church, your primary mission is not just to read your Bible every day. Your primary mission is not to pray at every meal and before bedtime. Your primary mission is not to raise obedient, well-mannered children. All of these things are very good and are great pursuits, but they are not your primary mission. Your primary mission has been given to you from God through Christ. And it says, share the gospel and make disciples. And if your joy is rooted in those things, there's nothing that can take that away. So start and acknowledge a season of hardship, but then acknowledge and remind yourself what your mission actually is. Because I guarantee you, whatever hardship you are facing will not prevent you from sharing the gospel with someone. In fact, it will probably be used as a tool to share it more. Step number three. Remind, this is so important, church. Remind yourself and other people who your God is. And if we go back to our series in Joshua, my God is bigger. Whatever mountain I'm facing, He's bigger. He's more powerful. He's sovereign. He's faithful. He always keeps His word. And when I'm in a season of hardship or distress, oftentimes that's the first thing I lose sight of is that my God is bigger. And He is greater than any struggle I'm going to face. And the last step is, <laughs> when I consider these things, I can rejoice because there is nothing here that can squelch the joy I have in Jesus for eternity. Nothing can take that away. Praise the Lord. So, here's a question I want you to wrestle with as we prepare to close. In seasons of suffering or hardship, what do people see more? My suffering or my God? When I face hardship and trial, what do people see more? My suffering, which is modeled by my frustration, my anxiety, all these other things. And I'm not saying those aren't real. That's step one, right? Acknowledge. The hard. But is my way of doing life revealing my own struggle or the size of my God in the midst of my struggles? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And before they close, I want to share a story with you. And uh, this is a story I heard recently while listening to a podcast. Um, Some of you may know uh, the name Levi Lusco. He's occasionally on the radio with little plugs. He's a pastor in the Montana area. and um, There was an interview with him and his wife, um, Levi and Jenny Lusco. And in 2012, 
they lost their five-year-old daughter to a severe asthma attack. She had an asthma attack, and before paramedics could even get there, she, her heart had stopped beating, and she died. Right before Christmas, December of 2012. And as they shared this in the interview, they said when they walked into that room and her lifeless body was laying there on the table, their instinctive response was that each one of them grabbed hold of one of her hands and they each raised their other hand to the Lord. And they committed their daughter back to the Lord in worship. And prayed, God, you gave us this child for five years and for that we thank you and we commit her back to you for eternity. And then as they left the hospital, they shared that as they started to pull out of the parking lot, they realized that they'd been carrying around these invitations to their Christmas service and they had not invited the hospital staff to come and be part of what was going to happen just in four or five days at the Christmas services. And so through the tears and the morning, they went back in and they, they just told the staff, like, you know what, um, we're, we're, we're having our annual Christmas celebration in four or five days and we're going to be there and we'd love in our daughter's honor if you would come too. And multiple of those staff came and there was multiple of them that made decisions for Jesus as a result of that. Now, I share that story because in my mind, I can't think of something much more suffering than to lose a child and to suffer that loss. And in fact, our God understands that pain in a whole other way because he, he gave his son for you. And yet what it was that allowed this couple to propel forward further in joy was because even in losing their daughter, they saw that there was opportunity for God to be praised. And they could recognize, in light of what Paul says there, their daughter was experiencing something far better. And so they worshipped. In the midst of suffering, they worshipped. Why? Because their joy was rooted in the Lord. My prayer for you today, church, is that you would leave here with a joy that is rooted in Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, goodness, we want to we talk with you and introduce you to Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. Our Savior. And so, if that's you today and you're just wrestling with this, we won't, I want you to talk to me. I'm going to be down here after the service. You come sit with me, talk with me. We'll pray together. We, we will, wherever you're at and struggling. And maybe today's not the day, but... Maybe you need to put that on the connect card and say, I'd love for someone to follow up with me because I'm just struggling to find joy in this season. Let us, let us know. We'd love to be able to walk alongside of you. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. We're going to close with one last song together. Father, we come to you and we recognize that suffering exists. And so, Lord, today, may we be a people who unite around the gospel recognizing no one can take this away. No one can remove this from us. Lord, that our joy would be rooted in that. 
Lord, give us eyes to see how you're using even the hardships of this day to lead other people to Jesus, to strengthen brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, that the faith of your church would be strengthened and united together, that we would go from here with a mission to share the hope that we have been given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.